Section 21 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3, Chapter 4, The Eighteenth Century, Part 1. When we leave the seventeenth century for the eighteenth, we seem to quit a noble hall, admirably proportioned, majestically grand, but not exactly suited to any purpose of modern life and to find ourselves in a maze of small and pretty rooms often disgracefully dirty but charmingly decorated commodious and well lighted the grand old christian ideas of the preceding age eternity the supreme importance of the human soul faith loyalty the sacrifice due to king and country the beauty of unity seem suddenly to have dropped sheer out of existence as though, like notes too much thumped on a piano, the last generation had hammered them mute. It is but a few years since Bossuet preached to the edification of all the court how God had permitted the English Revolution, civil war, and the death on the scaffold of King Charles I, in order that Henriette of England might die in exile a Roman Catholic to even the dawning eighteenth century this point of view appeared as remote as the middle ages bela in the great dictionary of history which heralded the modern period already makes his mock of those who say that great calamities are heaven's means of purifying the souls of princes the public says he se passerait bien de tel bain for the point of view has changed science and nature become the passion of the hour and when once we get down to the bedrock of nature, there is no such immense difference between man and man. We consider them and their generation and their death, and we wonder why one should be the sun king and the other a starving serf. A new tenderness for the poor, a sense of human equality, a desire to dispose the state in accordance with reason and justice, instead of continuing the reign of tradition and privilege, such were the signs of the times that from the very first years of the new century began to startle minds accustomed to the absolute rule of king and church between seventeen o seven and seventeen twelve an archbishop fenelon a marshal of france vauban and a magistrate made known their separate schemes for sweeping reforms which had they been adopted might have saved france the expense of a great revolution but louis the fourteenth was deaf to the voice of the charmers he disgraced the marshal who being tender-hearted as old soldiers often are forthwith died he kept the archbishop in exile and banished the magistrate but he could not banish their ideas louis the fourteenth survived by fifteen years the century that bore his name in 1715 he died and left the throne from which he had reigned for two and seventy years to a child of five years old thenceforth louis the fifteenth the situation was tragic for france was bankrupt with an annual deficit of sixty-five million francs and no man in the kingdom had so deplorable a reputation as the prince regent this was philippe d'orleans the late king's nephew, a curious, witty, intelligent, irresolute creature, a chemist, 
a would-be reformer, and a debauchee. There was scarce a crime of which men did not publicly accuse him. Because he was the doting, foolish father of a bad young woman, they whispered of incest, and said aloud that he had no prejudices. Because, mysteriously enough it is true, the Dauphin, the Dauphine, and one of their sons had all died suddenly in the space of a few weeks, they murmured, who was the next heir? The regent, of course. For the great poison trials of 1676 and 1680 were still fresh in the public mind. Even Fenelon, the wise and the just, even Fenelon, who loved the Duke of Orléans, lent an ear to these terrible suspicions. And Louis the Fourteenth, though his robust good sense qualified his nephew, a braggart of imaginary crimes, en fanferon de crime, secretly modified the provisions of the Act of Regency, so as to protect the person of the babe who was his heir. We who know the regent, by the masterly full-length portrait of him, which fills many volumes of the memoirs of the Duc de Saint-Simon, and by the more intimate familiar jottings of his mother's correspondence, we may feel sure enough that this gifted and good-natured libertine, impressionable and sometimes base, was yet not quite Macbeth. No Richard of Gloucester either. No wicked uncle scheming to assassinate the babes in the wood. We have witnessed that bursts of tears, that uncontrollable sob with which, to Saint-Simon's surprise, he greeted the news of the first Dauphin's death, though it removed from his path a hostile kinsman. Many of the great memorialists' immortal pages are still moist with Philippe d'Orléans' droppings of warm tears. We therefore know him for what he was, a man of feeling, the first of a type frequent enough throughout the eighteenth century, a man of impressions and curiosities, utterly unprincipled, sometimes perverse, yet full of the milk of human kindness, disinterested, amiable. Diderot, Rousseau have traits in common with him, but then the type was new, and those who judged the regent by the standard of the intolerant, noble, cruel seventeenth century supposed him a man ambitious of power and knowing him for an atheist thought it natural that he should be a monster and a murderer. The regent's first act was to pronounce himself the champion of reform, to restore to the parliament its long confiscated powers, affirming in a phrase borrowed from Telemach, that though his hands were bound to keep them from doing evil, an allusion to the late king's secret codicil, yet he would leave them free to accomplish good. Now for the successor of Louis XIV when opening Parliament to quote Venelon, and especially Telemaque, is as though the Tsar had suddenly spouted the most reprehended pages of Tolstoy to the Duma. Such a quotation is a program in itself. But when it came to the point of actual reform, to the question of deciding how to pay off the national debt and restore the finances of the kingdom, that program became vague. One party, headed by the Duke of Saint-Simon, proposed to repudiate the debts of the crown and start with a clean slate. But what sort of reform is that which commences with a national bankruptcy? The regent's curious investigating mind, always open to a new idea, preferred to accept the suggestions 
of a Scottish financier, one John Law of Lariston. John Law was an inventor in finance. As is the way of inventors, he failed and left an unenviable reputation, while later experiments took up his ideas, gave them a twist here and a turn there, and so renewed the world. For John Law invented the system of credit. The standard of value was gold. John Law recommended the concentration of the moneyed wealth of a nation in a central bank. No private person being allowed to keep in his house more than twenty pounds in gold, and the conduct of affairs by a system of letters of credit. For what is a banknote but a letter of credit signed by a name universally known and respected, the name of the state? Each state, according to his system, ought to possess a central bank, which should be at the same time an inland revenue office, receiving dues and taxes, and thus dispensing with the onerous services of the tax-farmers. No doubt, but in his system he was inspired, as Voltaire declares, by his remembrance of the Bank of England and the English East India Company, but he pushed his theory to an extreme. The central bank, continually renewed and replenished by the revenues of the nation, was to obtain the privilege of issuing a proportion of paper notes, guaranteed by the state, accepted by the public for their nominal value, but representing in reality only one-fourth of their worth in gold. Law actually founded his bank with a capital of six millions, divided into twelve hundred shares, payable for three-fourths in state-guaranteed banknotes. The success was prodigious. By the exercise of credit and the issue of paper money, the difficulties of the financial situation appeared dissipated. The state, continually in receipt of taxes, was a security not to be despised, and commerce revived. The regent, ever in love with new and bold ideas, was enchanted. In 1718, two years after its foundation, he dubbed Law's Bank the Royal Bank of France. The farmers general were dismissed and in many cases compelled to disgorge. Law was appointed the supreme controller of finance, he was made master of the mint. Already in 1718 he had been conceded the monopoly of French trade with India, with Senegal, and also with the Mississippi. The shares in his West India Company were the fever and the passion of the hour. The public, tired of poverty and economy, speculated wildly. Shares in Law's Bank worth 500 livres, or francs, at their remission, rose to the extraordinary price of twenty thousand francs. It is a question whether Law's system might not have answered, had the public jobbed and speculated with a less fantastic fury. Despite its ultimate disaster, it undoubtedly stimulated trade, industry, and the circulation of wealth. We must remember, before we judge the schemes of Law, and that English echo of them, the South Sea bubble, that in 1720, Nations had still before their eyes the example of a power which had, in actual fact, grown fabulously rich by speculating in American trade. Spain, so mighty in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, was at last too weak to maintain her clutch on the gold and the spices of the new world. Law's company might have been successful had he, instead of speculating, perfected the means of transport the cotton, 
the sugar, the quinine, the tobacco, the chocolate, the coffee, and the indigo of the West India Company would have found purchasers in France had they come to hand. It is unfortunate that the Royal Bank was solidary with the company. A sudden mysterious panic precipitated the crisis. When it was known that the bank would pay no more than ten pounds on any single account, an example followed by all the banks of France in the autumn of 1914 with no ill results, the public lost its head. On the 17th of July, 1720, sixteen persons were killed in the crush before the gates of the establishment in the Rue Vivienne. The Parliament refused to renew the privileges of the West India Company, and those envied treasured shares sank to the level of waste paper. Law fled for his life to Venice. The regent alone could not stem the tide of events, though he never quite lost his faith in the clever Scotchman, and his last project was the recall of Law. In the general consternation that followed the crash, the new measures stood condemned. The farmers' generals were recalled, and the finances of France resumed their accustomed, more leisurely pace on the road to ruin. End of section 21